This podcast is made possible by the generosity of listeners like you. Kindly consider a contribution through Patreon or PayPal. Links are in the details box. Patreon is a monthly subscription that you can cancel anytime. And PayPal is a one-time donation. Any amount is appreciated. And follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The handle, The Beirut Banyan. And you can find us on our YouTube channel with the same name. And you can start watching the episodes as they're released. Thank you for listening. And thank you for watching. I'm Rani Shatah. And this is The Beirut Banyan. should say from the beginning that this is an honor for me uh, to have you both on the podcast at the same time, uh, willing to tackle difficult, emotional terrain, and I think a healthy, long-form conversation format that serves its purpose well. And I'm going to let, uh, I'm going to let us sort of navigate the whole issue, but I want to sort of make it clear from the beginning, I'm no financial expert. Um, there are many people that are very good at what they do, so I'd rather explore your personal perspectives and maybe the long view here, just the wider story that we're going through. And I'm going to start the beginning with maybe the most difficult question, which is, it's just a month ago in June that you both publicly resigned, and in a way you made it clear that you were both fed up and from my understanding, you're both on the same page, that you gave it your best, but you saw really one way out only, which is resignation. And to me, and I think many people that witnessed this, it was a very bold statement. It was impressive. And uh, I want to just ask you from the start, do you think, looking at it, weeks, six, seven, eight weeks later from both resignations, that it served its purpose. In other words, did it send the message? Did it send it the way you wanted it to be sent? Or is it simply too early to put this in perspective, that we're still at the beginning, that maybe this is a very long story that's only starting right now? Well, to me, it's early to tell, honestly. I think it will depend on the capacity of the Lebanese people to react. If they are dragged too quickly into extreme poverty if they abandon the movement that they started if they accept to see the country stabilized at a very low level at a level like you know Yemen in our region for instance or worse uh, this would take us to different areas and I would probably at that point in time uh, realized that, well, it didn't serve so much. Having said so, this time it was important, I think, to tell the Lebanese what I believe was being prepared for them. In different words, when the 1990s started, we were putting together a system that, in my personal opinion, was a very bad one after the war. And it took the Lebanese people a very long time to understand what the basis were, what it was about. And before the middle of the 2000s, 
very few people had realized how pervert this system was. We are today at crossroads, and we are building a new system on the collapse of the previous one. We have a corrupt elite that is taking or trying to take what remains of the assets and wealth of the Lebanese. And I think they should be very careful about that. And this is why I'm saying that the difference, if you want, between this moment and many other moments since I joined the public sector is that there was a big opportunity because we were really touching on the serious issues in the system for the first time. And we got the support of the, the international community, but we failed to get our own people's support, our own government's support. So the crossroads here are we either go toward building a modern state, distributing the wealth in a better way, starting with the distribution of losses, by the way, and allowing the economy and the society to uh, reach a new agreement, a new deal, or, or we are going to see the same kleptocratic elite uh, basically throwing all of the losses, all of the dirt, all of the difficulties on the Lebanese population, giving them two choices without a third one. First is to leave the country, and the second is to uh, basically become either militia men or people waiting at their doors. You know, Alain, I'm going to just ask you one follow-up. The word perverted, I think I heard that right, that it's a, it, was a, it, was not, it was clearly not set up properly. And you referred to the immediate post-Civil War era. And I, I like that you went back that far because most of the discussions usually go back to the early 2000s. You're taking it one decade earlier. Can I, can I just ask you what you meant by perverted? Is it, is it more that it's the Ta'if era, that sort of uh, there was a built-in mismanagement, and, and that includes the geopolitical story that we're familiar with, the Syrian sort of, the, the Syrian indirect and then direct sort of engagement with the Lebanese state? Does it include that, or is it, is it more domestic, that the, that the, the Lebanese politics did not reemerge properly. I'm just trying to understand the word perverted. Maybe because I've been into the system for very long, I personally usually favor the uh, option of saying that it was internal. It was unfortunately built by our own hands. And the reason why I'm saying that is that we tend to believe in our country that we only need one event for everything to be uh, back in place the way it should. For instance, when the war was over, we thought that it was enough for everything to be perfect again, no efforts to be done, no building of institutions properly, having a new constitution but taking only part of it to be implemented. Later on in 2005, when the Syrian army withdrew, we thought that it was enough for Lebanon to be back to what it used to be in our dreams and in our uh, childhood. Well, no, there are efforts to be made to build the country and to put, to put it back on track and to uh, allow its institutions to be uh, working properly. You know, I appreciate this long view 
And it is worth noting that, yes, I mean, you've had two decades, at least two decades of direct sort of engagement with the the local creature of whatever it is that the Lebanese state is today. You've seen it up front. I'm going to pick up there. But Henri, just sort of your own perspective now, since we last spoke less than a month ago, and also just your own sort of, because you, you're the first, you kind of made it sort of a you made it very visible, and I just want to know your own reaction to that resignation, and if you share the same sentiment as Alain, or if there's anything else you wanted to add. Yeah. <clears throat> Look, um, Alain and I agree on a number of things, at least in terms of the diagnosing, uh, the, the whole diagnosis of the situation. Um, and, and more importantly, actually, the decision that we have to take, and we are literally I do believe this country is at crossroads that we've never seen before. Um, I, I think we are at more dangerous crossroads than we were in 1975. Um, and it's, on, it's actually uh, financial corruption, uh, the economic crisis we're going through is hitting all parts of Lebanon, across all communities, across all denominations, across all social classes, by the way. Um, there's no one who's left untouched. It seems to me that the driver of the car is sleeping on the wheel. Time is not of the essence. Um, they, we are in the middle of an imploding, you know, social, economic, environmental, whatever you want to add to these chapters. And yet, as you know, um, the IMF negotiations are stalled, to say the least. Uh, they're going at a very, very slow pace. Um, it doesn't seem that there's an urgency in dealing with the big chapters. We're fighting about things that are completely irrelevant. Um, and uh, no major decisions are being taken in terms of reforms, which was the major decision behind my resignation. Uh, clearly, there's an alignment of stars in terms of the protagonists who do not want to do reforms. Uh, be it the central bank on one side, the banks on the other, the politicians, everyone for his own reasons, and we can go back into that later on. But at the end of the day, you know, um, I think what, what Alain touched upon, which actually I mentioned in the conclusion of my resignation, was the new social contract. I don't think these guys, I mean the former warlord that are effectively ruling the country, are willing or are interested in having a new social contract. Um, they, they have zero interest in that. And unfortunately, I think in a, in a very, if I want to use the perverse way, um, in a very perverse way, I think there is a silver lining in this crisis, which will allow us to rebuild the system. It's okay. We are going to go through lots of pain, and we are going through lots of pain. A lot of people are not able to, to buy even the basic food for their families. But I think what at least we ought to do is to make sure that a new system will come out, out of this crisis. If we don't do that, that will be the most dangerous part. But I want to ask you about the Civil War reference. You said, I, ho I hope I got this right, that it's more dangerous in 2020 for the Lebanese state, and, and, I, and I assume in all its facets, than it was in 1975. Did I get that right? The, the potential for an outbreak of hostilities is greater now, or is it on the economic sort of, the financial sort of story, more than the actual violence that we saw? 
on on my side, what I meant was more on the economic side. Obviously, you know, uh, economics and politics and security issues are all interlinked. So um, uh, 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 social chaos would lead to security issues. Security issues may lead to something much bigger than that. Um, I, I We don't know how it's going to spill over. But I can also see uh, the moment people are going to realize the depth of the issue of the financial crisis, the fact that really a lot of that money is gone, has evaporated, um, may lead to some, you know, for much less than that, there has been wars out there. So I'm not sure how it's going to spill over, but, but clearly at some point there will be a trigger and that trigger would lead us to really uncharted territories. You know, before we get sort of back into the more recent sort of story, I, I, I appreciate I appreciate this long I appreciate this perspective because I'm not old enough to know what it would have been like to grow up in the early 1970s in Lebanon, and I like that the civil war is coming up in this conversation. And Alain, I hope I got this right in terms of quotes. Uh, it's from a Financial Times piece not too long ago. I think it was just over a week ago that you saw old demons coming back. And it was a reference to the Civil War era. Are, are you also echoing the economic story here? Or is the old demons more in terms of the politics that led to the sort of outbreak in April 1975? What were the demons in that, uh, in that quote? Well, they're on both uh, sides, obviously. Just like what Henri just said, all of this is very much linked together. And uh, I will not say... Uh, I mean, I will not repeat what he just said because I fully agree with uh, what he did, what he said. Uh, but I will jump from here to uh, the actual possibility of a war. And, you know, when, when we take this wealth concentration exercise to its limits, that would leave part of the population of Lebanon in a situation whereby they will have to either abide to a lord, a clan, uh, become militiamen, or leave the country, or stay into very big poverty, because, of course, the dismantling of the state is continuing, and the inability of the society to cater for the needs of its population are becoming bigger and bigger. In this regard, and since it is obvious that we're going to have a rather chaotic period of time ahead of us, this is the ideal situation, I would say, for civil problems to start occurring. And God knows how bad this can be if it starts and if there is no uh, proper system to um, you know, absorb the shocks immediately. On the other hand, if we leave it to, and I'm sure we'll touch on that later on, but if we leave it to uh, the, those people that Ari mentioned to try to sort the issue out, what we would most likely see is a country that is not able to attract the dollars that we want to see coming into the country uh, properly. And it will become a country that attracts the wrong dollars, which are, you know, money laundering, uh, local mafias, etc. And this is the best recipe 
for a very unstable society. It is basically the best recipe for a country that is ruled by crime. And this is something that we don't want to see. Let's, I mean, without, I'm not going to sort of be too hard on the 1990s in this conversation, because I know that, Alain, you sort of entered the stage, if you will, after. And I know, Henri, that maybe your story in terms of the, this sort of, this moment is more present. It doesn't date back necessarily to those years, but I, but I want your perspective regardless on the immediate, uh, the band-aids that were put up, that were put on the Lebanese state in the 1990s. And I'm curious about the challenge of anyone, whether it's you, Alain, in 2000 or Henri more, more recently, or anyone, anyone for that matter, after the civil war, that took it upon themselves to try and repair the Lebanese state, to rebuild it, to turn it into something that works. And I'm using very sort of basic terminology here, a functioning state. And clearly the 1990, uh, 1970s, the early 1970s, things were not great, but the state still functioned to a point. And I don't think I've known a Lebanon that functions properly. Again, keeping this very, very basic. Is the core problem the consensus-driven legacy in Lebanon that is just sort of now an outdated, maybe, and I'll quote you, Alain, a more perverted sort of uh, reinterpretation? Or is it something that's sort of beyond that, that this is corruption that is sort of more present, it's more recent? And, I, and I'm curious about why the 1990s did not work and, and why, when you entered the stage, Alain, in 2000, that you were entering a system a decade after the Civil War ended, institution, a ministry, that uh, is clearly sort of, it wasn't, the, it, wasn't, it wasn't the post-war recovery many people hoped for. So I'm just curious at the, the structure itself. Can, can you point at what are the core issues that prevent decent people, when they're entering, to actually achieve something positive? Maybe I can start with you, Henri, and then we can get to Alain. Alain, Alain definitely will have a better perspective back into the 90s. I was actually not in Lebanon at that time. But I'll tell you what I've seen from the outside, right? Um, at that time, I was living in the States. Um, and actually, I left Lebanon in 88. So, um, and unfortunately, you know, when I left, the name of the same protagonists that were on the front page of the newspaper uh, you can see them today. It's exactly the same thing, just different uh, different types of battles. And um, what I saw was really people people do not care. And I've seen that in this experience now, is that literally the state is run uh, by a conflicting agendas of personal interest. That's all what it is. And actually, there's no one in the political sphere that puts a hat of the sovereign nation, of the civil service, of the interests of the nation. So it's always, there's, a, there's no integrity in the process. I've never seen... Um, a, a government, and I don't mean by that the cabinet, but I mean the apparatus of the state, working with such less 
with, with, with such a modicum of lack of integrity. It's, it, it's just crazy. And, and the, 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 the one thing, I mean, obviously I haven't been in public service and probably it's the greatest honor any citizen can have would be to enter public service. But, um, and I found one thing that actually, if you're not conflicted, it's a very easy job. It's, it's, a, it's quite a simple job, um, not in terms of degree of facility, but in terms of giving it all your best and trying to make the right decisions. The problem becomes when actually, you know, there's a lot of conflicts, when confessionalism comes into play, when business interests come in play, uh, when there is really no caring for the rest of the people. And it's unbelievable the lack of care that exists within our political class. The only thing they care about is ensuring that they remain Zaims or whatever you want to use the term in, in their own turf. But other than that, it just doesn't really matter. But before we get to Alain, just, Henry, I want to push one step further on this. Is it a matter of the, the wrong crowd that inhabited the state after the Civil War ended? Is it the type of governance... Or is it the actual members within this regime that are really at fault? And I guess this is more of an existential question in terms of, is there something fatally flawed within the Lebanese state that got us here? Or is it just the wrong people that brought us here? I, I, I think it's both, right? Because the, the governance system that exists today, I mean, who built it? Who, I mean, you know, we're talking since the 1990. I mean, that's, that's, we're talking about, you know, 30 years. In 30 years, you can change a nation. And unfortunately, there's such a lack of governance rule everywhere. You know, and I'm sure Alain will be able to talk more about it. But if you talk, you look at the financial sector. I mean, the lack of governance that exists, the lack of um, even of follow-up of the existing laws is, is mind-boggling. So, so it's a dance uh, between both. It's, it's the wrong crowd and the wrong way of governing. And sort of, they sort of... In, in my mind, they are interchangeable. And these guys will not be able to deliver anything but bad governance. Alain, do you, do you share that sentiment? That it's, that it's sort of both at play? Or is there, more, is there a focus more on, on one versus the other? Actually, I do. I share it. I think it's both. And I think that the type of governance has a lot to do with that. And I will come to that in a second. But let me start with the wrong people that you rightly mentioned. At the beginning of this exercise, the Lebanese state was about to absorb, you know, militiamen, people who were, again, the patronage system, uh, whomever was to be pleased uh, in this game-changing period where we were moving from war to supposedly peace. And normally when you absorb these people, when you integrate them in institutions, the bet is that a few years after, you know, they are outnumbered by civil servants and they have to, you know, play the game and slowly but surely the story goes behind us. But the major issue in Lebanon is that these people joined in big numbers, but their bosses, when they were militiamen, became the bosses of the ministries. So those who felt totally uh, lost were actually the civil servants. I mean, they were not necessarily great, 
But we were in a totally different story. We ended up having those who needed to be absorbed, absorbing the others. And the civil servants at that time understood very quickly that they either abide to the new rule of the new ruler, or it's going to be extremely difficult for them to survive in this environment. So, yes, on the point of the wrong people took over. On the I think issue, I'm going to just interrupt you on one thing. That's like the first page of your autobiography. I think it should be <laughs> word for word. <laughs> but I'll, I'll let you keep going. Sorry for the interruption. <laughs> Uh, on the other on the other point, when the war stopped in the streets, uh, effectively the war did not end. It was just taken within the cabinet, and we started having those governments or those cabinets where people were never working together. They were basically always working against each other. This is why we are not able to deliver. This is why the Lebanese government is always unable to tackle the most important issues uh, with regards to what matters. Uh, and this game uh, means that basically it doesn't matter whether we are reaching a better common good. What matters is that some people from within defeat the others. And if they don't defeat them, well, they're waiting for them to be defeated one day. So there is a very uh, nasty mismanagement and, and, and uh, a problem from within. And the, cha the challenges that you were referring to are huge. And let me take it now from uh, the perspective of a civil servant who is looking at, the min at, his, at his ministry, his administration, and wondering what is wrong about it. Well, there are at least two things that the new system brought and that should be eliminated immediately. The first is that the new system changed the minister uh, and, and made him or her become the head of the administration on top of being a minister. And this is something that ruined everything that was meant to protect the administration and uh, establish it as a buffer, basically, between the political level and the population. Number two, even more important, ministers in practice are above the law. Nobody can question them. No checks and balances, no control. For instance, a minister in Lebanon <clears throat> does not abide or cannot be, if you want, prosecuted by the central inspection, by the court of audit, by the judiciary. The PM cannot get rid of him or her. The president cannot. And basically, these people can do whatever they want uh, and overrule whatever they want and violate laws and constitution without anybody being able to question what they're doing. And the mere fact that you have a situation like that is already a catastrophe when it comes to uh, the system and the way it is. Now, some may argue that this is not the Constitution. Basically, the Constitution says, true, that there is a specific court for ministers and presidents at Parliament and that they cannot be uh, prosecuted somewhere else. But this obviously doesn't apply to everyday crimes. It applies to treason, it applies, you know, to the very high-level stuff. 
but it was taken to this area and uh, and uh, and left there. Uh, and obviously, with a system like that, to come back to another very important point that you mentioned, you cannot stop corruption. It is practically impossible. In this situation, even if you bring saints, they are going to be corrupted sometime, you know, uh, down the line. And finally, this situation that you also alluded to, uh, which is consensus, this is what I call consensus dictatorship. It is a terrible situation whereby you dilute responsibilities. And when anybody who is acting in very weird manners can get, uh, can get along with that, can uh, get away with that simply because there is this dilution of responsibilities and because everybody else who have no clue about uh, the topic that he or she are uh, uh, managing have gone along with him. And finally, if I want to sum it up, as a civil servant, uh, I always had a few dilemmas in front of me all day long. And I think that they will tell you, uh, I mean, important things about the way we interact sometimes with our political hierarchy. The first one typically is about the civil servant who is doing the right thing, but who is going against the minister. My job is to support this person, is to encourage them and to help them and to go the same way. Reality is that when I do that, these persons end up being thrown, God knows in which uh, irrelevant uh, place in the ministry, by the minister. What do you do? Do you try to help them out without confrontation? Or do you push them to do the right thing and then blame yourself for what happened to them? That's a serious dilemma. Another one is, there's a nasty deal going on. You know, you end up seeing that there is something fishy that somebody is trying to push forward. I took the line that systematically I would oppose it. This is my job. But very often I know that simply because I oppose it, it's going to be taken above me to the Council of Ministers, where it's going to be approved anyway, and it's going to cost the citizen even more because people had to buy support at the Council of Ministers at the expense of public money. That's another dilemma. And finally, the big one is when you see a rotten system like that, do you let it go down or do you keep fighting to let it continue despite how ugly it is? I want to tackle one thing about that dictatorship, the consensus-driven dictatorship, and I like that description. Is it that the, I mean, again, I like the perspective, why Lebanon has sort of degraded or, or devolved to a point in 2020 that it seems ungovernable, but not that long ago in Lebanese history, there was some hope, and then before the civil war, it worked to a point. Why that, what, what is it about that word dictatorship that's new? Is there certain authority that comes from the war? that just didn't exist before, that there's warlike behavior within the Lebanese state? I mean, because I'm, I'm curious why why this didn't happen at Lebanon's birth, that it's happening in 2020. 
I mean, it's happening a century after the borders were drawn. I'm, I'm curious about that because I, I, I appreciate that somebody like you or, or anyone sort of in a, in a monster-like regime cannot really affect that much change because you will be circumvented. But why, why is that the case? I mean, what, what makes Lebanon in such poor form today as opposed to not that long ago? Well, that goes back to the uh, immediate aftermath of the war okay. when uh, it was decided that uh, the clans would be ruling together. So, so it's the 1990s. That's that's the sort sharing. of it, yes, hmm. but it but it is culminating now, and I will come back to that in a, in a second. It was put together this way because one way or another, one had to find good reasons to. Uh, put these people around the same table. And obviously, what was given to them was immunity. Immunity because if they all support each other, nobody can come after them. And on top of, of course, the the distribution of resources that the system was uh, producing. So it, it was built this way. And the reason why, slowly but surely, it became, I mean, of course, the use of the word dictatorship is, I mean, particular. But the reason why it became so harsh is that, slowly but surely, it was becoming obvious that without this system, most of those clans would not be able to continue. Okay, that's actually, that, that's what I was trying to get at. So it's the system that Lebanon inherited from the 1940s, if you will, put back together in the early 1990s, not in a way to encourage change, but rather stagnation, that it almost, it, it, it entrenched the, the worst of Lebanon's recent history and made them more powerful than they should have been. Because I'm, the reason I'm, the reason I'm, deliberately trying to sort of take us back is because I think this is a very long story, that it's clearly not about 2019, 2020, but I also think it's not about the last few years. I think it goes back a lot earlier. So that's why I'm kind of, and I appreciate what you just said, that it's it doesn't encourage positive change in its, in its sort of, in its reinterpretation, if you will, from 1989 on. Did, did I get that right? That it's sort of it doesn't allow for yes. much, much room for improvement. Yes, it doesn't allow for improvement, and this system has basically taken the worst of the confessional communitarian system that we used to have uh, before and until uh, uh, the war. Uh, in the sense that before, there was a distribution, of course, but every citizen didn't necessarily have to go through one or two leaders from his own community or her own community to make it to any level within the state. We have basically eliminated any kind of positive uh, selection in the process, and we have kept patronage and uh, basically militia-style management. And this has become harsher and harsher because this system had to fight for its survival while going bankrupt one year after the other. And bankruptcy here is not only about financial, it is, you know, economic bankruptcy, social bankruptcy, and now political bankruptcy. I mean, where is the political system here? 
what government is able to achieve anything. You know, it's uh, basically, I tend to call it today the end of politics. What are we exactly hoping for in the Lebanese political game? Not much today. I mean, I know, and I, I appreciate that very bleak sort of assessment, because that is exactly, I think, yeah, well, well said. But Henri, is that something that, I mean, again, trying to put it in the long view, is it something that's simply ir- irreparable, that what we have today, just the reform in a sense, and since you both are really sort of advocates for that kind of positive change, I mean, you were, you're reformists, if you will. Is that something that you share, Henri, that it's it's too late, that this, this way is over, it cannot be reformed, that it has to be sort of dislodged altogether? And again, looking at it from the long view, is that something that sort of what Alain said, does it resonate? Do you remember last time when we had the podcast, you asked me, you said if there is one reason that you were to identify, to blame the problems that we experience today, what would that be? I remember you said and my it. answer yeah. was, yeah. and I said, I, and I actually, I said religion when I should have said confessionalism. And I think confessionalism is really the problem. And confessionalism within the state is the problem. I mean, everyone can observe his own religion, his own confession, do, do whatever he wants. But the real issue here is that unless we move towards a secular state, there will be no political improvement in in the country. This, we have to be able, this country has to be able to move towards a fully civilian, secular state where competencies are basically the paramount criteria, where political parties are not based on religion, are not based on affiliation, but they are based on a program, a social program, an economic program, an environmental program, whatever makes a traditional party in the rest of the world. Today, the party that we have do not run on a, they don't have a platform, they don't have a program. It's basically, you know, you have the um, uh, whatever confession you want to take, a Shiite, a Sunni, or whatever. Um, but this does not make any sense. We cannot build anymore. We cannot keep on going like this. Uh, we need to have, you know, the right policy on education. We need to, write, to have the right policy on health coverage. We need to have the right policy on women's rights. We, I mean, we need to build a society where people, when they are born, people who grow, want to look forward to stay here rather than going outside. What is the business model of of the country? The business model of the country, since its independence, has been to export the youth so that the youth can import, basically work outside, and we import the dollars. I mean, this is a model that does not work. We want a model where we build things from the inside. You know, the reason I I bring this up deliberately is because, and I'm younger, and I know my, my perspective is limited, but... The glory years that everyone talks about was the same type of governance. So that's why I'm curious. I'm curious uh, if, if, and I'll, I'll go with you. I, I share that yearning for a secular society. I think that, that and I, I think that comes with 
experience that it seems to be a sort of a model that attracts me more than than others i'm not a big fan of power sharing among communal elites so it's not my thing but i'm curious why that model made lebanon shine to a point or lebanon shined with that model in its recent history it was not a secular state in the 1950s or 60s clearly not so that's that's kind of why i'm trying to always reinterpret what's happening and that long view is i mean if secularism was the natural evolution of lebanese history i i would assume that it should have already taken some traction but it hasn't and in 2020 even though that sentiment is shared it's still something that i really can't see happening i can't see a true secular state emerging emerging in lebanon so that that's kind of why i'm trying to get at 1990s until 2005, clearly Lebanon was mismanaged for a number of reasons, not just by Lebanese, and I share, Alain, your, your sentiment, even though local actors were horrible, most of them at least, that they sort of they, their true colors shined after the civil war ended, uh, we also had the Syrian regime heavily involved, so that cannot be sort of removed from the story. Beyond 2005, without the Syrian regime occupying Lebanon, we've had other stories to deal with. And that, I mean, it goes without saying, whatever your opinions are, Hezbollah is part of that story. Or their authority, sorry, their authority within the Lebanese regime today is part of that story. But we're not talking about those things. We're talking about really crony capitalism. We're talking about poor leadership. We're talking about militiamen that occupy positions of power. In the 1950s and 1960s, the same model existed without that. It was detached. And I'm not trying to challenge anything here. I'm trying to get at maybe the root ills of what we're experiencing right now. And I, that's maybe, maybe that's not the best question, but if you, if you can maybe add to that and why, why Lebanon is so disfigured today, but it wasn't before. And I sorry, I'm sorry I keep repeating that point, but I'm really, I'm curious as, and it might be a hypothetical question, does it really come down to the method of governance, or is it something that Lebanon needs to address first before we can get to something that works better? Uh, Alan, if you can maybe add to that. Um, yeah, I actually very much like uh, the question that you just uh, putting forward, and that is precisely because we are in the process of looking for what could be the right approach for the Lebanese society. And you're right. In the past, what made Lebanon so nice was also a communitarian system. Having said so, let's keep in mind that those glory years were only about three decades, nothing else. Number two, we had, honestly, better people in charge. I mean, we have to admit that at that time, Despite everything we used to say about our elites, we had people who knew how to grab the moment, who knew how to react positively to things, who knew how to take advantage of what was happening in the Middle East, and plenty of things were happening in the Middle East at that time, and so on. And they made good choices. And I would add to that one very important point in my personal view. And that is that the state at that time was respected. In my personal opinion, the main reason, and I tried to uh, tackle that earlier on, 
is that the state at that time was considered as the strong side. I remember I was very young, but I remember that policemen in the streets were respected. Judges were never uh, considered as, you know, taking the wrong stance and being corrupt. Uh, it was a government that was collecting taxes, that was basically saving enough to buy gold and so on. The problem is that the state after 1989 was by design the weakest counterparts. Any clan that would clash with the state since 1989 would be the stronger side. Take what happens when you have a, you know, a crime, somebody who murders somebody else. They would tell you very simply, well, yeah, we could not, uh, we could not find the guy because he's hiding at this politician's place. I mean, can you imagine something like that? This used to happen in the 50s and the 60s, true. But at some point in time, the leader had to let go. I mean, the, the, those, uh, the, the person who was protecting this, uh, this guy. Uh, take the public money issues. Nowadays, it is considered as, you know, practically normal practice that, well, of course, I mean, the guy is a minister. He's allowed to, you know, uh, take into consideration his own uh, uh, needs. At that time, that would simply not be accepted. And then there was also something about the society. I remember very vividly, I was, I think, five or six, and I was asking my mother while leaving church, Mom, why are those people very nicely dressed uh, standing outside? And she said, well, they don't have a good reputation, so the, uh, the priest doesn't allow them into the church. It was a totally different relationship with ethics. And this has a lot to do not only with communitarianism, but with the very system that we put in place in 1989, where basically we voted uh, uh, the amnesty law and we kept a lot of criminals in the system. You know, I, I'm going to just interject a, no, a personal story. I remember my father always saying that students were afraid of double parking on Bliss Street in the 1970s. I mean, that is so profound. <laughs> so you get a ticket. <laughs> and, and you had to pay. It's not like uh, you couldn't just tear it up and walk away. You know, you had to pay that ticket. So that, that is a very sort of, I, I like that respect, not, not in a silly way, in a fundamental way, that the relationship was healthy between citizens and the state. Henri, is that, is that something that, that yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm going to say two things. First, now we worry about triple parking on the street. <laughs> double, parking, double parking is okay. Triple parking is a problem. But um, on, a, on a serious note, um, I think there is one element uh, of hope at least in the society of today. And that is not coming from the state. It's coming from the new generation. You see, our generation, and I, is basically, I mean, I was born in 66, right? So I grew up in the war, really. I mean, I was nine when the war started. I can, I remember only the war, right? I mean, remember very few events from before that. Um, the new generation, 
that generation Z, I guess, or whatever. I keep, I, I keep on getting lost on what it's called. But yeah. millennials, but, and, yeah. but yeah, the millennials, whatever. I mean, these guys don't know the war, right? These guys haven't seen the war. They don't know what it sounds like. They don't understand confessionalism. They don't understand um, uh, political incorrectness. They do not understand. Um, they, they they haven't seen all that, right? So, and they are yearning literally for a society. And and obviously, there's communication methods have have evolved tremendously the amount of information that's available to them is not the amount of information that we have so the whole world is in front of them and this new generation which we have seen by the way on october 17 going down the streets and and uh, and and being really behind the revolution want to build a modern state they do not understand corruption they do not want corruption uh they do not want confessionalism uh, they want simple, basic rights. Uh, they want to develop a modern economy. Um, and I think, honestly, uh, I mean, it's when we went through the revolution and um, I used to see, you know, colleagues of mine at the office who are obviously very junior and, you know, coming in straight from the street at 10 a.m. or 11 a.m. to go to work. And... Um, it, it really gives you a, a ray of hope that maybe um, there is a, a way of building this modern society with these guys. And their approach is so different, so different from our traditional one. I've seen that myself, and I, I sometimes feel old when I sort of think back and I realize you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the average protester that I saw on the street has no inclination for the past. They're looking uh, to the future. I, I completely agree. You know, I, it would be inappropriate to ignore <laughs> the most recent story. And I know I deliberately didn't want to focus in on it because it's been exhausted to a point. And then I saw you on TV, on, on MTV, I think. Sorry, but on LBC, on LBC with Albert Constanian and Henri, I, I've sort of spoken to you about it, and I just want to get a, the, as broad of a picture as possible. And really, if if it's of any use, maybe a lessons learned for anyone down the road trying to, in a way, accomplish what's started in, in 2019, 2020. I think I assume here that both of you sort of are on the same page in terms of the signaling when it came to your resignations. Um, Alain, I'm going to quote you to you. All state officials should be held accountable, including me. And also, you refuse to be part of or witness to what is being done. Now, that's from late June. And in that more recent Financial Times piece, I'll again quote you to you. If you're interested in what is happening in your country, you either fight or you don't. Now, that sentiment, that kind of trying your best, given the circumstances, realizing there's a wall that cannot be sort of pushed over, you can't climb over, it's a brick wall. I assume, and again, as a novice, as an amateur, that an IMF deal is necessary no matter what that there's really no way out of this. And I also assume that even though there's been a lot of pessimism, in particular since your resignations, almost sort of that 
things are so bad at the moment. And, and that sort of your resignations is a consequence of that. I still assume that there's really no way out. If Lebanon is to at least heal financially, economically, some deal has to be struck. Maybe, and I can start with you, Alain. What are the conditions, in your opinion, as someone who's lived and breathed this thing for two decades, what are the conditions today to get there? Is it something that requires pain? Are we, are we at the beginning of seeing maybe a deterioration to a point that there are people that feel threatened, that they may actually, it's an issue of survival, that you'll see something very damaging occur that would lead to maybe positive change? I mean, I, do you see any bold actors willing to take charge here and risk their reputation, if you will? I mean, and I'm saying this in a very vague way because I'm trying to avoid the sort of, and I'm not trying to make it personal, not trying to sort of sort of name individuals here, just the broader story. What, what are the conditions today with your resignations to get to that deal? Well, uh, with reference to the fights, you reach a point, especially when you are at such important crossroads, where you do believe that to be able to give it a real fight, you have to retrieve your freedom. And it is impossible to have this freedom when you are part of the administration. Because at the end, um, in the circumstances like that, a major part of the fighting is the explanation, is be, being able to talk freely. Uh, on the other hand, what you very rightly pointed to as, uh, you know, this remark about everybody should be held accountable, including myself. In a normal system where your hierarchy does its or where justice does the job or where the media do the job, you wouldn't have to add this, including myself because that would happen normally. But it happens that the only thing that remains in a situation like that is utmost transparency. The worry is that because people are willing to take responsibility, because people are not willing to act and take the risk of, uh, you know, the, the, the consequences of their actions, there may be this situation where the country has to go very low to the lowest before we come back to reason because we have no other choices and we start discussing again, but after losing a lot of money and losing a lot of time and inflicting so much more pain on the population. In other words, what worries me today is that our, I mean, the plan we were supporting was obviously uh, torpedoed by this uh, alliance between some specific politicians and some specific bankers. Uh, but what worries me is not that there will be something instead. What worries me is that what they want to uh, promote instead is going to be terrible 
for the public money. At the end of that, we will unfortunately be back to square one because we will have to go through the methods that we were hoping to promote from day one. And that would have been a lot of waste for not much. So yes, we will probably come back to the IMF. We will probably be brought back to the IMF. But uh, those, uh, this amount of time that we would have wasted is unfortunately very, very bad for the Lebanese. Before we get to Henri, just, I, I, I mean, it's come up several times in the conversation, these references to the civil war. And I, that's a very bold assertion that, that certain, certain actors would rather see the civil war than an IMF deal and for their own survivability. But that's a very that's a very dangerous sort of moment that that in a way civil servants, despite their efforts, have to deal with that issue as well, that they're sort of in the middle between mm-hmm. actors that would rather see fighting as opposed to a sort of a, a cleaning up, a, a sort of a reform within the state. So is that your own immediate experience, Alain, without Again, I'm not sort of insisting on any names here. I don't want to sort of put anyone uh, in, a, in a delicate position. But just, is that your own immediate experience, that you dealt with people that are ready for battle as opposed to negotiation? Uh, absolutely. Not only uh, dealt uh, with uh, that kind of people, but hearing them very clearly say that. And the funny part is that Ten years ago, I used to say already that my guess is that many of them would rather go back to civil war instead of seeing the reforms that we have in mind being implemented, for good reasons, because basically they would lose so much ground that at the end of this game, they will think that, well, maybe we won the country, but they didn't keep their positions. Uh, It is not a choice between an IMF deal and the civil war. It's giving the option between any deal with them keeping all their advantages and their assets and anything else that would trigger civil war. So it's basically really about uh, denying the real situation, uh, trying to maintain their position as much as possible, and potentially, uh, you know, drowning in this this fear of seeing the others benefit uh, and uh, and taking a stronger position than the one they have. So so in other words, if a civil war, and this is the worst-case scenario, were to reignite, it's a byproduct of certain individuals' hell-bent on survival, the way that we understand their current position, that if their civil war does not necessarily have to begin now, it doesn't have to happen while there's a negotiation, but that's a consequence of what we're seeing, that the stubbornness may lead to that inevitability, which is in a way, it's not, it's not very, it's not a remote possibility anymore, that it actually could happen, and at the same time, we may even see in a way, both happening, that there'll be people still desperately trying and the beginnings of sort of civil unrest. It's, it's, I mean, 
I, I, it, well, to me, as somebody who has been trying to observe it, uh, this moment every single day since it started, uh, that is so far away from the euphoria of October 17 that it's almost like uh, two different stories at play. Well, precisely. On the negatives and the positives, I would count among the negatives first the chaos that we might expect from the present crisis, mm. the inability of the old guard, what I call the guardians of the temple, to let go, the impossibility of this system to reform and therefore to implement properly any deal that is stricken with the IMF or with any other uh, yeah. third party. And keep in mind, said or in the previous government, you know, sure. total inability to move one centimeter uh, uh, in the right direction. Yeah. Uh, but there is also the positive. And the positive is that we are now in this society where most of the troops, most of the citizens, have no idea why they should be following this person or that person and don't care about who was this leader some time ago and why people are following him or her. On top of that, as Ari was very uh, uh, clearly saying, these people do not care about, uh, uh, I, mean, and, and, I mean, do not care about confessionalism necessarily. What they want is to have the kind of state in which they can live a decent life. And this also means that they will have to secure one way or another a different kind of regime that will allow them to uh, precisely live the life that they want. And this is clearly not the present one. This is, uh, I would say, a lot of hope uh, in the system. But we have to be very aware and cautious about one thing. And that is that, unfortunately, a war or a local conflict or problems in the streets can serve the purposes of the old guards. Because on one hand, it would put the whole discussion about the economy and the financial crisis on the side. And on the other hand, it will force people back toward them. And that is definitely something we have to be very aware of. And, uh, I mean, willing to uh, integrate that in any framework uh, that we envisage for the future. Henri, I mean, that, that sort of, the delicate, the delicate, the danger involved and how delicate things are at the same time. Do you share that sentiment? At least when it comes to the, everything involved and that's, also the IMF, the necessity of that kind of deal. Is it, has it reached that sort of critical juncture to you? I think it did. Um, we, we did reach that point. But just for, for you and for the listeners, let, let, me, let me put, I think the IMF part is the easiest part. Um, l l let me describe to you the process a little bit in literally layman terms. We, Lebanon is deep into a hole, right? So no one is going to take you out of that hole. Effectively, the IMF process is to say, you need to dig yourself out of this hole. And you need to finance yourself to get out of this hole. And we will give you the fuel in order for your economy to take off. And you need to ensure 
while we are on that flight path, you need to ensure that you always have the right safeguards, you have the right laws, you have the right governance, so that the fuel will remain and that you can keep on your flight path. So the problem is not cutting a deal with the IMF. I don't think this is where the difficulty is. The difficulty is how do we get ourselves out of this hole, which means how do we finance the fact that we got ourselves into this hole? So how do we finance the losses, which means who's going to pay for what? And this question, when you do not have people, uh, when you do not have leaders that care for their people, when the only thing they care about is the very narrow personal interest, this is where a security conflict can result. It's because what they see is at all costs preserving their own interest over the national interest. And, and, and this is where the conflict is going to be. Now, ultimately, as Alain said, we will have to cut the deal with the IMF. You know what? It's very simple. We have only $18 billion to go. That's what we still have. And at some point, and at the rate at which we're going, this money is going to be gone. And no one, except for humanitarian aid, is going to come to your rescue. Not the Gulf countries, not the Western countries, not the United States. No one is going to come to your rescue. And the risk is that this will impose some really strategic choices that may be forced upon the country in order to move in this direction or that direction because we are going to be so deep into it. Um, so I think the, the, uh, unless we are able in the next few months, and literally this time there's no more than few months ahead of us, unless we can, over the next few months, get our act together and figure out a way to finance these losses and to say, as a nation, we have agreed that this is the right way to move forward. We are going for a mutual self-destruction of beyond, beyond proportion that this country has never seen before. I know that, Henri, last time we spoke, that I think it was the following day, uh, you were meant to meet the president and prime minister. I think they were trying to sort of call you in and discuss your resignation and, and other issues. And Alain, I, I hope I got this right. Your resignation has not been formally accepted yet, that it's still in the sort of in the pipeline, but it, but that it's, you've, you submitted it, but it hasn't been accepted per se. I hope I got that right. The, the, uh, are there conditions for people like you who announced your resignations for the right reasons to return and be that bridge once again? Are there are, are there are there any? <laughs> do you see any sort of potential for your return, or is it in, in sort of this is not for you anymore? That you made your point clear, and if anyone's going to do it, you know they should do it. But but that you're out of the out of the picture. Uh, maybe Henri, I can start with you. Well, I'm going to link it to what Alain said. If you bring back that's the state's people that used to be in the 50s and 60s to lead this country out of it, or people of the similar of the same caliber, then yes, the answer is 
I will go back and re-engage. But until then, no one of the existing political apparat in the in, in the political apparat will um, has my trust, or I would give him the credibility that I would bring to get this job done. Uh, Alan, is it the same situation for you? That assuming that the resignation is accepted at some point, that you will not return unless there's fundamental change, the way Henri just said? Well, actually, I was uh, called to the reasons of my resignation, and I was extremely clear and maybe a bit too clear at some uh, moments. And uh, whether it is accepted or not, I'm not going back to the office. So it's going to be considered as accepted in the coming week or 10 days, maybe. I mean, the total is 15 days required. Uh, and the reason why I'm not coming back is that I don't think that it is useful anymore to be a civil servant in this fight. Basically, being a civil servant, being a director general, means that you are, and, you know, of course, given what we described earlier on of the situation uh, and the governance, uh, means that you are trying to, trying your best, but not necessarily listened to. And um, what, I mean, the best that you can expect in this situation, if you have your credibility and if the international institution bilateral respect you enough and listen to you, is that you are a strong advisor. But in this process, being a civil servant who has to accept the decisions that I can see very clearly uh, taking the country to a situation that I don't wish for at all is not something that is negotiable at all. Uh, whether I will continue to fight for what I believe for my country, this goes without saying. But uh, this resignation is certainly final, and there is no way to come back. And uh, the issues that would make it, uh, I mean, would make the situation better and allow for uh, the process to work. Everybody knows what the prerequisites are. The question remains, who is able to implement? And where is the will for implementation? And I'm not going to take you through the nitty-gritty of what is required but once again, that the system will find it extremely difficult to introduce the reforms that are needed. And therefore, it is very important to come back to a situation where uh, we can take the opportunity to changes in the government, in the system, together with the changes that are needed at the financial and I don't get the chance that often to speak to both of you, Henri and Alain. And uh, the last time I spoke to Henri, he shared a very, a very sweet story uh, of just sort of meeting my father on a plane and having a conversation somewhere, I think, over the Atlantic, maybe, if I got that right. Just a, lo a flight, and they just had sort of uh, a back and forth, an exchange of ideas. 
Alain, before we started recording, you said something very, very sweet. And uh, I, I just want to get, maybe if you can, any sort of, any memory of your inter exchanges with my father. And I know that it may be one of the shortest tenures in the Ministry of Finance, or I don't think it's the shortest, but it's very short. Uh, just a, and this can be, I mean, you can say whatever you want. I prefer the sort of, if, if it was, if it was tense, I'd like to know that. If it wasn't tense, I'd also like to know that. Just a, a memory of dealing with someone like him and the, at the same time, your own sort of work and your own, your own role as a director and his role as a minister. I, I would love to know just a little more about that relationship. And, and if it's not at the ministry, outside the ministry as well. Just, just your own, uh, your own memory of, of, of Actually, yeah. if you allow me, it's going to be both at the ministry and outside the ministry. At the ministry, I have to tell you that when uh, your father became minister, I didn't really know him, and to me, he was like, "Oh my God, he's close friends with Fuad Senora," and you know, we usually didn't get along very well together. Uh, and to my that's, surprise, that's the most diplomatic. Was that's very the, diplomatic. <laughs> but yeah, sorry, keep going. <laughs> but to my surprise, it was one of the most enjoyable relationship that I've had with any minister. And the funny part is that the, I mean, Nora's team would come and tell me, well, how come the relationship is so good? I mean, can you explain to us what happened? <laughs> and every day at around three, he would call me and say, Alain, it's time for politics. So I would leave my office, go to his. And the amazing thing, and I'm throwing flowers at all, the amazing thing about your father was his outstanding ability to find things that are interesting in anything that people would tell him. And he would have this capacity of you know, from any idea to build on that and to reflect on that and to, you know, get something positive out of anybody's minds. And this is why uh, when he left the ministry, we kept seeing each other on Mondays at this restaurant called Alesia. We would have lunch, uh, the two of us alone. And funnily, we would discuss a little bit politics, not finance at all, hmm. and a little bit also of quantum mechanics. There you go. So now I know. Because now I know that you know him because that that is what yeah. he used to throw on me all the time. He would like yes. corner me and say, "We have to talk about I'm like quarks and uh, and things." I'm like, "What exactly. are you talking about?" <laughs> exactly. And uh, and uh, he knew that I was passionate about that, and I knew that he was also. And uh, and by the way, I will send you my book the moment it is published because it has a little bit to do with uh, that, but that's a different story. And uh, there that I would like you. That's that, that's the funny part. Yeah. One day he calls me. I was having lunch with the French ambassador, and he says, "Alain, please try to try to get rid of him quickly because we need to do something together." So I basically did. <laughs> I was back to the office and he was waiting for me in the car downstairs with like five, six escort cars in front of us. And we started moving 
And I told him, what's the story, Muhammad? And he said, uh, look, take a look at those uh, papers, and I will explain to you later. And I start reading something written by Jamal Basha, the Ottoman. Ler, ler, ler. Now that I'm leaving this uh, area of Lebanon, blah, 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 there is a treasury hidden in God knows which place. Of course, I remember this. Wow. And and he tells me, guess what? I have no idea what this is about, but the prime minister wants us to go there to check whether there is a treasury or not. (laughs) (laughs) So we go there. I cannot tell you how much fun we had those two days. I mean, we, on, on our way there, he was telling me the story and how this Jordanian Turkish guy came to see the prime minister and brought the documents and so on. And then we went to this tiny village in western Bekaa with like, I don't know, 200 uh, uh, soldiers. And they brought the guy from his from his place, opened the... Uh, the maqam, it's a religious place, and started demolishing it. And we were we were standing outside and, you know, half worried and half laughing. <laughs> it, was, it was so unbelievable. And at the end, uh, I told him, look, there are vans from uh, uh, TV stations. He said, okay, it's time to move on. <laughs> oh, so they got, they got wind, they were showing up. Yeah, they were coming yeah. to them, <laughs> and uh, yeah, that was that was a moment that I, I mean, I don't remember anything so uh, funny that I've had the ministry with. Yeah. That's hilarious. <laughs> but if I if I may, I mean to to end uh, on a on a serious note, um, his ability to come up with solutions based on what listener he was, was just amazing. And I remember once, uh, this, is, this, is a, this is a secret, so I don't know if we can keep it or not. You, you tell me after once we end if, if, you, see, if you, yeah, go ahead. Once I went to see General Haun in Rabi, and there were talks about changing the government and so forth. And at the end of the meeting, he stares at me and says, I think your friend would be a great prime minister. And I said, my friend? And he said, yes, your friend. <laughs> so, uh, and obviously the reason was that he was seen as being someone who could uh, very wisely manage situations and uh, always be... Uh, able to come up with uh, with solutions when everybody else wouldn't. I, I mean, we'll end it on a, in a positive way. I'm just going to add one more thing. Uh, to me, I, I still believe, and this is maybe shifting a bit away from the financial story, but it's sort of, it's, it's related. Uh, you mentioned forces of darkness and injustice that are robbing Lebanon of its future. It's an, it's it's a it's an issue we didn't really get into because I kind of wanted to focus more on the maybe the longer story of modern Lebanese mismanagement, but the there is sort of a structural problem within Lebanon that goes beyond 
corruption and goes beyond uh, a cast of horrible characters that rotate between ministries and authority. And there is one group that sort of has the ability to remove and dislodge somebody like that. That is one thing that I bring up repeatedly. And I, I unfortunately think that is very sort of uh, important to moving Lebanon in the right direction. And it's something that has not really been tackled properly. But it's been left, I think, uh, out of the discussion, may maybe out of fear, or maybe out of that they, many people are not able to kind of link that group's abilities to what we're seeing in terms of the economic mess. But uh, the man that you just described, who, you know, for better or worse, I keep him in my background. You guys have, have the very nice book collections. <laughs> I wish I had book collections. I, I, I've kept him. I, I don't think uh, Lebanon, I, I don't think uh, decent people who are trying to bring Lebanon into something that works uh, can really make it that far so long as the use of violence can eliminate them. And uh, I mean, I... I don't know. That's something that sort of I hold very, uh, it's, it's a very important thing. And I, I hope that, I hope that uh, the future doesn't have to deal with that mess because uh, it, sh it shouldn't take half a century to, to rebuild Lebanon. It just doesn't, doesn't make sense. But I'll keep the ending, I'll keep the ending positive. So on, on that note, very, very kind to share those stories. You took me back to that treasury mystery. I vaguely remember that. This is a while ago. And we the, the maps and trying to fun. find the, <laughs> the treasure. This is like, this is the Lebanese state <laughs> looking, looking for money. <laughs> it's, it's hilarious. It's hilarious. And, and uh, then he had to, he had to one of the villagers what a minister meant. He told him, who are you? And he said, well, you know, I'm the Minister of Finance, and the government asked me to come here. And, and he said, what's the minister? Shuhayden was here. Yes. No, and I can see him doing something like that and in a way enjoying it. And you know that reference to the quantum mechanics that, or quantum theory, or whatever, yeah. I, I still, it's beyond me. But I think he, he was in his element when he was discussing things like that. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad you got to see that up front. It's, it's difficult to appreciate yeah. then at the moment. You're like, what the hell is going on? But then later, you're like, no, no, this man is actually, he's thinking out of the box. And you said it earlier, conflict, yeah. uh, looking at conflicts in, in curious ways and trying to problem solve. I think that was his talent. I completely agree. Yes. On that note, I took too much of your time. This really means a lot to me from, from both of you. It really means a lot. And uh, thank you, Alain, for sharing a bit of that reflection and your longer you. and your wider you story. I, I look forward to your book. I, I, will, I demand a copy. And Henri, thank, thank you again for joining. Um, I think, thank you. Now, I think Wi-Fi was to your favor today, and I noticed, I think, the beard is new. You didn't have a beard a month ago, or maybe it's sort of grown a bit. No, I had, but it has grown a lot, so I need to trim it. No, 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 I no, think no. That as a message. <laughs> no, keep it. It suits you. It suits you. You look good, my friend. So, okay. thanks to you both, and I really hope the best for the future. Thank you. And Thank I, you I, so I hope so we figure much. it out. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Bye. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening, and a friendly reminder to help support this podcast by contributing through Patreon or PayPal. All links are in the details box below. 
Until next time, I'm Rani Shatah, and this is the Beirut Banyan. <laughs>